Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunity to share your word with everyone here. pray that you will, by your Holy Spirit, open our eyes to see and give us ears to hear. Soften hearts that are hard so that we might be receptive to your word. For Jesus' glory, I pray. Amen. You can be seated. I'd like to talk to you about this gospel reading, The Temptation of Jesus. And uh, we might think when we hear about the temptation of Jesus, what does this have to do with me? After all, Jesus was the divine Son of God. And so, uh, he's in a different category than I am in. So, what does Jesus' temptation have to do with me? How can he possibly relate uh, to my trials and my temptations? How can a billionaire like Bill Gates or Elon Musk relate to somebody like me who has to watch the money at the end of the month? They're in a different category altogether. Well, I want to address that in a little bit here, uh, how the temptation of, of Christ or what the temptation of Christ has to do with us in terms of how Christ can, even though he is the divine son of God, also be our our helper in times of trial and temptation. But first, and really most important, we need to consider that Jesus, if he had not overcome sin, he, could help, he couldn't help us deal with our sin problem. And if he hadn't defeated the devil, he couldn't deliver us from the devil. And... and as we think about this story, what is happening is that Satan is trying to destroy God's divine plan of salvation, and he knows that Jesus has come to carry out this divine plan. Satan is trying to derail this plan before it really gets off the ground. Jesus has been baptized. At his baptism, he's been declared to be the Son of God. At every uh, temptation, in every temptation, what Satan is trying to get Jesus to do is turn away from trusting God's word and fulfilling God's plan. So in the first temptation, Satan says, if you are the son of God. Now, Jesus has just heard the word of God. At his baptism, the word of his father. You are the son of God. He's been declared the son of God. He's by the spirit led into the wilderness. And then right out of the gate, Satan tries to sow doubt about the word that Jesus has heard. This is tactic number one with Satan. To get us to doubt the word of God, what God has clearly spoken. And so he says, if. You are the Son of God. Turn these stones into bread. Jesus has just fasted 40 days. Let's let that sink in, just on a human level. How do you feel after skipping a meal or two? He's not eaten for 40 days. Can you appreciate the... Uh, Toughness of Christ, the endurance of Christ, 
So after this 40-day period of not eating, of course, he's famished. And, and Satan wants Jesus to use his power to turn stones into bread. And what he really wants Jesus to do is to be like Israel during its 40 years in the wilderness. Jesus 40 days, Israel 40 years in the wilderness. And over and over again, we see in the story of Israel, they were hungry in the wilderness. And they grumbled and complained about God's provision. They did not trust God to provide. They did not trust his word. They did not trust that he would secure them in the promised land, which was a place of provision, a land, as we heard in the Old Testament reading, a land flowing with milk and honey. So over and over again, Israel failed to believe in God's promises and God's provision for them. And Satan wants Jesus to sin in the wilderness just like Israel did. Don't trust your father. You've got the power. Satisfy your hunger right here, right now. And Jesus replies, it's written, man does not live by bread alone. That's from Deuteronomy chapter 8. There's something else that man lives by besides physical sustenance. And he doesn't quote this. It's not here in Luke. But the rest of Deuteronomy 8 is, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus' food, Jesus' sustenance, the reason Jesus lived, where he drew his life from, was to obey the will of his Father. He said in John 5:30, I can do nothing on my own. I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now, none of us here can say that. <laughs> that everything we do is in accordance with the will of God. But Jesus can say that. And Jesus demonstrated that. He was faithful to the will of God all the way to the cross. He fulfilled the will, the plan of salvation. To honor his Father and out of love for sinners like you and me. So the second temptation, so, so Jesus passes the first temptation to not trust the plan and the provision of God, his Father. And then the devil tempts Jesus to false worship. He tempts him to false worship so that Jesus will, he says, receive worldly uh, power and authority. He takes him up. It doesn't say where. It doesn't say how. There's speculation about this. Is this a physical location? Is this a vision somehow? It doesn't say. But he takes him up. And uh, he shows him the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, in a flash of time. And he said, I'll give all this to you, Jesus. All the authority and glory of these kingdoms. If you will just worship me. Bow down. Just a little genuflection. And it's all yours. All the authority and glory of the kingdoms, which are in some sense under the authority of Satan. Think about what that would mean to have that kind of glory and authority. In the Bible, in the book of Revelation, Babylon stands for 
a kingdom that is under Satan's authority. Babylon the Great, which ultimately is defeated. But there's a picture in Revelation 18 of Babylon and the cargo of Babylon. Again, a metaphor for this kingdom of spiritual darkness. And it says that this cargo of Babylon is full of gold and silver and jewels and pearls, exotic and fine spices, horses and chariots and servants and slaves. And, 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 and so, in other words, Satan is saying, Jesus, I will give you all that. All the luxury, all the power, all the glory, if you will just simply bow down and worship me. How many people have turned away from God because they have felt that struggle? Am I going to live for the kingdom of this world and the glory of God? Or, excuse me. Am I going to live for the kingdom of this world and its glory? Or am I going to live for the kingdom of God and his glory? That's a fundamental choice that everyone has to face. And how many people have turned away from God over time where they've given up on pursuing the kingdom of God and his righteousness and instead wanted to pursue the kingdoms of this world? Especially happens when we bow down to money. Money is one of the great powers, one of the great tools, one of the great idols that Satan has to get our eyes off the kingdom of God and to begin to capture our heart for the kingdom of this world. Because it's through money that we can have power and we can have possessions and we can have prestige. And it's not that money in itself is evil. You can use money, but Jesus says you can't serve it and God at the same time. You can't serve both God and mammon. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith. He's thinking about people. He's thinking about people who started off with a profession of faith, who started off saying, I'm going to live for God. I'm going to live for the kingdoms of this world. But because of the love of money, they've wandered away. And he says, and they pierced themselves with many griefs, with many sorrows. They're living now a life of regret because they've given up. They've sold away their inheritance for a pot of stew, the love of money. And we all face this struggle especially in our culture today. But it is especially, I think, acute for younger Christians. You have got to decide, young Christians, am I going to seek the glory of the kingdom of this world or am I going to seek the kingdom of Christ and His righteousness? Who am I going to live for? What glory am I going to pursue? Well, Jesus didn't fall prey to this temptation, to false worship, to get worldly glory or power. He did not come. I mean, he's going to fulfill this divine plan. And at the center of this divine plan for Jesus is not to get for himself. It's to give. It's to give of himself. To give himself as a sacrifice. Not to be served, but to serve. 
So Jesus stays true to the, the plan, to the path that sets before him. The third temptation was to test God, to test God, not to trust God, but to test God. Satan tells Jesus, throw yourself down from the temple, the pinnacle of the temple. Throw yourself down. And notice that in this temptation, Jesus changes, or Satan changes tactics here against Jesus. Jesus has been quoting scripture against Satan. And so now Satan's going to twist scripture. He's going to, he's thinking, I'm going to use the same tactic here. And he quotes scripture to Jesus. Except when he quotes scripture, he twists it. He, he mishandles it. And this is another way that Satan, another prime tactic that Satan uses today to derail people and to get them to believe lies. The first tactic is don't believe the word of God. The second tactic is if you have some reverence for the Bible or the word of God, okay, and then he's going to use that word to twist it. He's going to take things out of context. He's going to misinterpret it. He's going to say, pick and choose what you want to believe. I just read a testimony of a lady who was a best-selling author of New Age material, New Age books. And she said, I quoted Jesus all the time. I quoted the Bible all the time. It was the parts I liked. I left out the other parts. I twisted, I manipulated, I, I put it out there for the public to eat up. And we were in the driver's seat when it came to handling the word of God. We rejected what we didn't want to hear. We received what we wanted to hear. And now she's saying to people, please don't ever buy my books. That's the tactic of Satan, to twist the scripture. And that's what he does here with Psalm 91. Nowhere in Psalm 91 does it say, hey, why don't you go ahead and intentionally put yourself in danger and God will rescue you. It's a misuse of scripture. And so countering Satan's twisting of scripture, Jesus simply quotes it. Deuteronomy 6, 16, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Quote scripture, plain, clear. And, and that's how we combat temptation and that's how we can uncover the lies of the enemy if we know scripture. If we're familiar with it and we know what it says within its context and that that has filled our hearts and our minds, then we're able to detect the lies of the enemy. And if Jesus our Lord did this, if that was part of his arsenal when it came to struggling, and dealing with temptation, it surely has to be part of our arsenal too. It needs to be in our arsenal. Well, so Jesus is victorious over all Satan's temptations. He trusted God's word. He trusted God's will. It took him all the way to the cross. What does that mean for you and me? What does Jesus' victory mean for you and me? Well, it means nothing less than our eternal salvation. Because he was perfectly obedient to God because he perfectly obeyed the will of God. He stayed true. His life is able, he's able to offer his life as a perfect sacrifice to God for our sin. He's the spotless lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So he can stand in our place die the death that we deserve, live the life that we should have lived for us. You see, where we have failed to trust God and his word, Jesus succeeded. And if we belong to him by faith, if we're united to him by faith, we share in his victory. And this is the wonderful good news. 
about Jesus' overcoming sin and Satan for us. We share in his victory. It's like the running back. There's a running back in the NFL named Sean McCoy. He was a great running back. He has two Super Bowl rings. But here's the catch. He never played in a Super Bowl game. Uh, he, he's at the end of his career, and in 2020, he happened to be with the Kansas City Chiefs playing with Patrick Mahomes. And in 2021, he played one year with a guy who just happens to have the most Super Bowl rings, Tom Brady, down there in Tampa Bay. McCoy never took a snap in those games. But because he was playing with champions, because he was on the right team. He never contributed to that victory, but because he was part of the team, he got the ring. He's a Super Bowl champion two times over. It's the same way with us. Jesus is our champion. And because he was victorious, when we are united to him by faith, trusting in what he has done for us, we share in the victory. Uh, we need to believe this with all of our hearts, that we are right in the eyes of God, not based on what we have done, but based on what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. That's the gospel. Paul says it in our passage from Romans. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's a matter of faith. It's a matter of belief from the heart. It's not a matter of trying to get to God. He says you can't ascend to heaven to get Christ. You can't ascend to God through your good works and your efforts. You can't have some sort of mystical, it's not some sort of mystical experience where you can bring God up or Christ up from the abyss. It's not based on your experience. It's not based on your works. It's based on faith in what Christ has done. That's where the victory comes from. Are you trusting as you think about your life? And there might be some people here who can look back and, and, and say, I have failed in every one of these sort of temptations at Jesus. I've chased money. I've chased worldly honor and power and glory. I've put the physical needs above the spiritual needs oftentimes in my life. I've bowed down to wrong things. If we're honest, we can all say that. So how do I have hope to stand in the presence of a holy God? Because of faith in Him. He's our victorious Savior. And that leads me then to my second part. Not only is He our victorious Savior, He's our sympathetic helper. Our sympathetic helper. You see, He, he helps us in our temptations and trials. Somebody has written, Michael Horton, we can endure temptation and suffering not in order to win the prize of salvation, but because somebody has already won it for us. And we're united to this victor. And he can help us in our time of trial and temptation. That's what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 7 of Hebrews. That Jesus is our high priest who always lives to make intercession for his people. Jesus is praying for you. Incredible thought. He ever lives to make intercession for his people. Jesus knows your name. Jesus is praying for you. And, and the writer of Hebrews says that he's not like a high priest who's detached from his people. 
who cannot sympathize with those he prays for. Because, Hebrews 4.15, he is like us in every respect. He has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now, that raises the question I started with. If Jesus is the Son of God, if he is divine, how can he be tempted like me? A human, a fallen human. How can he possibly sympathize with me? How can he know about the weakness, the weaknesses that I experience when I face trial and temptation? And what we have to remember, friends, is this. Jesus was not only and is not only fully divine, he is fully human. He is a man. He's God and he's man. And that's the great mystery and the paradox, if you will, of the incarnation. He's flesh and blood uh, like you and me. In fact, at the day of Pentecost, the Apostle Peter gets up and preaches to the crowds that are gathered there on the day of Pentecost. And he says this in Acts 2.22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourself know. Jesus of Nazareth, a man, a man who was attested by God, that God worked through. Yes, he was fully divine, but in some way that is incomparable, incomprehensible to us, he laid down some of that, some of the... the, 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 the the privileges of his divine nature. Didn't empty himself of the divine nature, but the privileges of the divine to experience what it means to be a man. And as a man, he wrestled with temptation like you and me. Do you believe that? Now, some people say he didn't experience the inward pull of sin like we do. The inward desire. But he certainly experienced the external pressure to sin. And we see it here in the temptation in the wilderness, but all throughout his life, this external pressure to sin. And we see it at the end of his life, in the garden, as he prays. As he prayed. He was tested so severely as he was facing death on the cross, that in prayer, it says that his sweat became like great drops of blood that fell on the ground. So let's not think that Jesus' struggle with temptation was somehow easier than ours is because he was the divine son of God. He was also fully man. In fact, you could say it was harder because Jesus never gave in to the pressure. The pressure stayed on him and he never cracked. Somebody said, only the sinless one can know the full intensity of the temptation to sin. <laughs> a boxer who gets knocked out or a boxer who throws in the towel in the first round has a lot easier time of it than the boxer who goes 12 rounds and stands on his feet the entire time. Jesus never cracked under the pressure. He was never knocked down. He experienced the full intensity of that all the way through his death. And so, as the writer of Hebrews says, 
because we have a sympathetic high priest, we can approach the throne of grace with confidence, listen to this, to find help in our time of need. We have somebody who's been where we're at. We had somebody who was victorious over sin and temptation. And he knows what it's like and he can give us help in time of need. How do we access that help? Through prayer, approach the throne of grace. And he's able to give us mercy and grace in our time of need. And so this season of Lent is a time of spiritual renewal. And I hope part of that for us means renewing our prayer life. And it's a struggle sometimes to pray. It's a struggle oftentimes to pray. And to pray seriously with confidence, taking hold of the promises of God. That can be a struggle. I feel the struggle. Maybe for some of us, our prayer needs to be, God, give me a desire to pray. Give me faith to access the help that you have for me at the throne of grace. We're facing a great enemy. We face difficult times and trials. And God has this provision for us. It's like what's going on, the terrible thing that's happening in Eastern Europe right now. Ukraine is facing a great enemy. They don't have the resources in themselves to stand up against this enemy. They're saying to the West, we need help. And, and so we're shipping some things over there. We're doing some things for them. We're, we're shipping weapons to them. What if they just said, okay, well, thank you for your help, but we're not going to access this in the face of the great enemy. <laughs> Wouldn't make any sense. Do you believe in the power of prayer? To help you in your time of need. I'm not saying to take away all your problems. He says, the writer of Hebrews says, to give you grace and mercy and to help you in your time of need. Do you need to experience the grace of God, the presence of God, the mercy of God, the forgiveness of your sins, the help that comes from knowing God is with you? You do that through prayer. And we can approach the throne of grace. We can access that throne because of Christ. He's our sympathetic helper. What is tempting you? What is testing you? What is causing you to lose faith? What doubts are you wrestling with? What trials are you going through? Where's the pressure coming from? The pressure to not believe. You've got to pray about it. You've got to lay hold of the grace that God offers. I encourage you and myself this Lenten season... Make much time for prayer. There's a way to go through it with faith, hope, and love. We have a friend in heaven, a victorious champion. He prays for us. He's been there. He can do more than just lend a sympathetic ear. He can give you grace, mercy, and help. He can help us in our time of trial. Give us strength to go through it in faith if we will just lay hold 
of what he promises. If we'll grab it. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you'll help us to do that. And uh, especially, Lord, this Lenten season to renew our life of prayer. We thank you, Lord, that you have been victorious over sin and Satan. And we thank you, God, that you're alive even now. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, that you work in our lives and point out things that we need to pray about and pray through. And Lord, we thank you that we have a high priest who's praying for us as we do that. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.